Welcome to Access EDU, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of accessibility issues and efforts in higher education. I'm Megan Fogel, and I'm here to help you understand the importance behind accessibility and how it can impact the day-to-day lives of your students, faculty, and staff wherever you're teaching. Today I'm joined by Raheem Abdi, who is an accessibility analyst here in the Office of the Chief Information Officer. So tell me a little bit about what you do here in the land of IT. Certainly. So I, um, when I was hired, uh, we had an accessibility practice um, that kind of existed before me. And so one of the things that I was brought on to do was to um, evaluate systems, content, websites, and applications that currently existed in addition to uh, implementing a process for, for um, ensuring accessibility moving forward. So that's essentially what I do on a day-to-day basis. I evaluate um, content, website, etc. For, for accessibility, thinking about how users with disabilities are going to be impacted by uh, those, those types of information technology. Um, you know, we work with developers and, and designers and different groups to remediate um, you know, their, their content. We track the, the work that we do. Uh, using Jira, which is an issue tracking tool that's that's becoming very popular, um, and we put focus on on you know collaborating and educating our, our partners where whenever we can. So, um, getting people um, knowledgeable and up to speed so they be, they can become autonomous when it comes to accessibility. I think that's important also because it's everyone's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Not just telling them what they did wrong. Exactly. Cool. So when you go to sit down and um, try to evaluate something, say it's a a learning tool, where might you start and what tools would you use to help you do that? Sure. So when it comes to accessibility, I think that um, what you're essentially doing is, you know, as a, for example, keyboard user, keyboard only user, as a screen reader user, um, a screen reader is a, is a really important piece of assistive technology for, for those that are low vision or blind because it allows them to navigate uh, an interface or content or what have you. Um, purely through you know, an application that reads it allow for them. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take those use cases as a keyboard user, screen reader user, as a color user, um, and we're trying to emulate that interaction from that vantage point. So the first thing I would ask myself is, okay, is this thing accessible from, from a color standpoint? You know, is there sufficient color contrast? Uh, is color being used to convey meaning? Um, you know, from a keyboard standpoint, are all of the elements on the page accessible? Um, can I access them? Can I can I um, interact with them? Can I can I you know navigate to them? Navigate away from them? Do they fall on um, expected interactions for for those elements? Do they make sense to me as a keyboard user um, when I fall on a button, for example, that this thing is actual button uh, and I can interact with it? Um, and lastly, from the assistive technology standpoint, are things labeled for me? You know, if I if I can't look at the screen and I'm relying on uh, an intermediate piece of technology to communicate the role, name, value of, of a UI element. You know, is that thing labeled? When I activate it, does it give me a notification that something has happened? Um, is there structure on the web page, right? So, you know, for me as a, as, as a, for example, a non-sighted or low vision user, you know, is there is there what's called a heading structure? Are there headings on the page that tell me what the major parts of the web page are and provide to me convey to me the outline of the page, whereas a sighted user, you would just kind of glance at the page and, and know where everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that structure is, is absolutely critical when it comes to, to screen reader users. So I may ask myself all of these questions 
and from there uh, produce an evaluation or an assessment that, that um, kind of documents all of the, I don't want to say shortcomings, but documents some of the access barriers, we call them, for such users and, you know, uh, the steps needed to, to ensure an equal experience for, for those users. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of these are geared towards vision differences. Um, what are questions that you ask yourself to make sure that you're being inclusive of all um, categories of disability? Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that because when it comes to, a lot of people will think about, about accessibility and they'll think, oh, that's for um, those that are blind, for example. But in fact, that actually comprises a very small, when you look at the disability demographic, you know, about 20% of people have a disability, roughly one in five people, and the number of individuals with um, visual impairments or visual disabilities is actually one of the smallest groups. Mm -hmm. And the largest group's uh, demographic of individuals with disabilities would be those with, with cognitive disabilities, you know, learning-related disabilities, dyslexia, ADHD, what have you. So um, that actually is a very small, uh, even though it's the most technically challenging, it's actually a very, very small part of the, um, the uh, assessment itself. Um, when I think about other groups that could be uh, affected by the accessibility of content, we're thinking about users with hearing impairments, those that may be deaf or hard of hearing, for example. We're thinking about those with mobility impairments that you know, may not use a mouse at all, you know, are going to rely on a keyboard or perhaps another assistive technology besides a mouse or a keyboard. Um, we're thinking about those with uh, color-related disabilities. We're thinking about those that may have seizure-related disabilities, so we don't want content we want content to, to um, you know, adhere to certain guidelines when it comes to animation and flashing and things like that. Uh, we're thinking about those with psychological disabilities, mm -hmm. right, uh, and also cognitive disabilities. So quite a bit of the, the evaluation itself is uh, leaning towards or considers those with, with uh, you know, other types of, of, of disabilities. Um, not to mention that, you know, we also think about usability as it relates to accessibility as well. So we could have an issue um, that even internally in the accessibility community, we would disagree on whether it's a true accessibility issue, whether it impacts everyone. So accessibility is kind of, um, you know, part and parcel when it comes to um, usability as a whole and how it come, kind of relates to universal design. So many times we say, well, this button doesn't really make any sense for anybody, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's, a, it's an issue for, for, for anyone that's interacting with this page. So that's an accessibility issue, although it may not specifically relate to those with disabilities. Yeah, so that's kind of what I was going to ask, how often when you're thinking about and trying to get into the perspective of someone with, a, someone with a cognitive disability, do you find yourself really evaluating the usability of it and trying to pull your preferences out of that? Yeah, I have. so we have to be very careful as I think accessibility people to not be um, prescriptive or not be, um, we want to be as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. and, and thankfully, just like a lot of other kind of disciplines in information technology, we do have technical standards that we, we adhere to. Um, one of those would be um, what's called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which is a very robust normative document. It's an international standard that not only describes how to test websites for accessibility, each of the um, what are called success criteria, and what can I tell you, you know, is the focus visible? When I, when I hit tab on my keyboard, am I able to see where my focus is and easy, easily track it? That's a testable statement that can be recreated by, by someone in order to test the accessibility of websites. So I definitely don't want to be um, prescriptive and, and say to myself, well, I think this is an accessibility problem because I think it's an issue. 
um, you know, in terms of, of, you know, success criteria that relate directly to those with cognitive disabilities, um, there's actually quite a number of them uh, in, in, in WCAG. Some of them are not even, you know, you may not even be able to meet them. Uh, one of the WCAG success criteria says that content, and this is a, a very high-level uh, conformance criteria, says that content should be consumable and understandable by, by someone with at most an eighth grade education. Mm. And we know that that's not always, always possible. So, in general, some of the considerations that I make when I when I think about that specific user demographic is um, does the does the, the the layout of the content make sense? Are there are there headings to denote sections of content? Mm -hmm. um, are interactions uh, uh, you know it, it, are are elements consistently identified throughout throughout the interface throughout the content? Um, you know, is there a, a pattern uh, that users can fall into to quickly understand how the interface works and how information is conveyed to you in a in a in a um, in a simple and straightforward way to allow you to, to execute the functionality or to consume the content. Um, and not to mention, you know, color-related uh, uh, considerations as well. So color is a very integral part of, I think, the, the, the um, digital experience. And so how color also factors into, into those with cognitive disabilities and those that, that don't is that, you know, we don't want to use color as a, as a means to convey meaning. Not everyone's going to understand that. Not only that, but, you know, it's not always... Um, from a cultural standpoint also like you know i'm from east africa you know mm -hmm. the red a red hexagon means nothing to me in america <laughs> it means it means stop so i think ensuring a a um a i don't know what the right word is for this but also just essentially an experience that a user doesn't have to have all that baggage that extra so yeah you know yeah 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 parallel knowledge or something like that yeah exactly exactly so you brought up the idea of not everything can really be achieved, especially because a lot of times in higher education, we're working with a pretty specific audience. So when you sit down to evaluate something, what do you need to know about the end user of that or the audience of that? That's actually, uh, interestingly enough, many times not um, a salient factor in, in um, knowing how to evaluate that thing. Mm -hmm. Only because what we do from, from, again, from an accessibility standpoint and also from a risk standpoint is we mm. say, okay, there's a piece of content, there's a website, there's a system that's going to go out. And the first question I may ask myself is, is you know, who is the, the, um, the end user? Well, the end user is going to be a student. Mm -hmm. That's all I probably need to know at that point. At that point, it would, it would kick it up in terms of, of criticality for us because you know, we're a university, our primary quote-unquote clients or customers are students. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would constitute a high-risk um, high uh, uh, evaluation or an assessment. So, you know, we have students at the very top uh, of, our, of our risk hierarchy. You know, does this thing impact student academic success? Is it required for a student to succeed, uh, uh, you know, at Ohio State? Um, and is it used by large groups of users? So is it public-facing? You know, is it for prospective students? Is it for all students, all staff, all faculty? Um, those are that's probably the first question that I would that I would ask. Um, and at that point, I would just start my start my evaluation with that in mind, knowing that this is a high risk item. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, cool. So that's a, a sampling of what you think about every day. Mm -hmm. Not all of it, obviously. Yeah. But how did you even get interested in accessibility? So I studied, uh, my undergrad was in computer science, and um, luckily I was one of the, the uh, at least among my friends, um, I was able to get a job right out of, you know, literally the week after I graduated, mm -hmm. I was able to find a job. And I started working, I was a student then, when I was getting my undergrad, working at the Student Life Disability Services office on mm -hmm. campus. 
And much of what I did in addition to kind of providing end user IT support uh, was also um, learning about assistive technologies that we, the Disability Services Department, provided to students that would come in and, and use our, our lab. And so um, what's interesting is, is that um, in addition to the IT side, I learned a lot about well, how does a blind person use a computer? How does mm -hmm. someone with a mobility impairment use a computer? Um, once I learned a little bit of, about more of those um, kind of assistive technologies, um, my supervisor, the GA that was supervising the lab, essentially graduated and left. And I was kind of the main go-to person. People were asking me all kinds of questions like, how do we have this set up? How do we provide the screen reader to students? How do we we want to buy a magnifier, could you help us? And, and I was kind of thrown into to the deep end um, kind of as a third and fourth year student. Um, when I graduated, they offered me a job working full-time as an IT person, and 50% of my job was essentially just dealing with those kinds of technologies for users with disabilities. So I kind of got a passion for it because I saw you know, the impact that those technologies had and how it, how it bettered you know, the, the, the lives of our students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Are there any computer science programs that touch on accessibility, do you know? Unfortunately. At Ohio State? Anywhere, Anywhere that you've heard of. None that I'm aware of. I know that there are certifications provided by, by a number of um, uh, organizations. One of them is the um, CSUN, California Northridge. Oh, yeah. They have a, a, an assistive technology, I think, rehabilitation certificate program. Um, and there are some, some other certifications that, that um, some other kind of uh, third-party bodies provide. For example, the, the um, IAAP, the International Association of Accessibility Professionals, they have mm -hmm. a certification program for, for learning about assistive tech. Unfortunately, accessibility is not as sexy as a mm -hmm. discipline as you know, security or cryptography or um, some of the like you know front-end web development. Mm -hmm. It's kind of relegated to um, you know. Um, not the, people definitely don't think about it as a function of computer science, uh, and it's not strictly computer science, but it right. definitely impacts uh, and is closely linked with information technology. So, um, IT in general, I think, is is uh, you know very important, and accessibility belongs under IT. Uh, but no, nothing nothing formal, unfortunately. Yeah, which is why Raheem is so rare because he was kind of homegrown here. Yeah, and I learned from you know other people that that were. Um, I would consider them experts in the mm -hmm. field. I was lucky enough to be trained by our current Digital Accessibility Center director. His name is Peter Bosley, a very knowledgeable, uh, extremely uh, you know, knowledgeable person when it comes to accessibility and assistive technology and stuff. So um, it's definitely not a, a field that um, there's a lot of information about and how to get into it and break into it, but um, it's a field where we need accessibility people. We need people with the knowledge to do assessments and to provide recommendations because um, accessibility, unfortunately, isn't on the radar as much as other things. Um, right. So. Cool. Um, so, what <laughs> screen reader do you usually test with? Good question. There are lots and lots of different screen readers. Um, the one that I use the most is NVDA, uh, which stands for Non-Visual Desktop Access. It's a free screen reader that works best with uh, the Mozilla Firefox browser. And uh, you, can, you can download it for free. It's an open source application. You can donate a couple of dollars if you really like it. Um, the reason why I test with, with NVDA is that um, for a couple of reasons. One, NVDA seems to provide the most true experience when it comes to web accessibility. So some screen readers will try to, to guess at things or mm -hmm. try to make uh, uh, you know, a guess at what 
for example, the label for, for an element is or that kind of thing. So NVDA will give it to you, give it to you straight. It won't, it, you know, which makes it a really good, uh, you know, uh, uh, screen reader for testing because um, you know that whatever you test, that is the state of that thing. You don't have to worry about the screen reader trying to do anything extra. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the, probably the first reason. Uh, the second reason is that it works well with Firefox. And Firefox is a great browser uh, insofar that um, it tries to, to keep up with modern web standards um, and, and uh, you know, try to, to um, support technologies as they, as they become uh, and standards and things like that as they become available. So the pairing of NVDA and, and Firefox is kind of an industry standard when it comes to, to um, web accessibility and testing. Most other schools, institutions, private organizations are going to be using that combination to provide screen reader testing. What do students use the most? Students use JAWS uh, okay. and, and, and not NVDA. So JAWS has a, a stronghold on um, the screen reader market. Um, it was one of the first screen readers to, to, to market um, when screen readers started becoming a thing and robust technology. Um, so many of the students that I've encountered use JAWS. Um, if you're on a Windows uh, device, if you are on a Mac, or if you have, for example, a mobile device and an iPad, um, typically users will use VoiceOver, and that is the built-in screen reader uh, as part of the macOS and iOS platform. Right, which is typically how I do very low-level testing just to run through and see if I can actually make it through something. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, so what do you think about the accessibility of all these new iPads on campus? What can students start to expect that's a great question. So we have, you know, obviously that's that's really important to us, the Digital Flagship Initiative. Um, we're collaborating with our Digital Accessibility Center um, to, you know, ensure that from the moment that a student gets an iPad, that they're aware of the accommodations that exist, they are able to easily access VoiceOver. Um, all of the offerings that we provide to them uh, as part of the, the standard iOS image um, are accessible, at least the, the, the apps, or they have a way to, to get an accessible version of that. Um, I know that I, I collaborated, I'm not sure if it was you, Megan, but I, we took a look at the handbook that we provide, the iBook, mm -hmm. which is essentially just a digital book um, on you know, digital flagship-related uh, information that may be pertinent to a student, ensuring the accessibility of those, those books themselves, um, and also providing students with a way to get assistance if they need it also. Right? So um, there are things that we may not have thought about, or there may be a student that's impacted by you know, having an iPad and they have a disability and um, they need help. So providing an avenue for, for support also. Those are some of the types of things that we've thought about and that we're continuing to think about. Right. So I've heard recently that iOS is actually fairly decent in terms of the accommodations that it provides, the different settings you can choose for accessibility. Mm -hmm. There's a free screen reader built into iOS. There are color-related tools. You can change the, the, the color of the screen. Um, there's magnification tools built into to, you know, Mac OS and iOS, and those are also text-to-speech. So if you're reading a book, you can have it read aloud to you. So quite a, quite a varied gamut of, of um, good assistive technologies that would you know, help a user um, do what they need to do. Cool. So as you get ready to start evaluating something, what are the most common problems that you find across the board? Do you mean uh, just content or like websites or anything? Anything. Anything. Uh, the most common problems that I find are, you know, issues related to headings, right? So headings are, and when I say headings, I don't mean, you know, text that's been made really big and bold. I mean actually semantic, you know, the part, part of the code, right? So this is a heading level one, this is a heading level two. 
Now, structure is important because it conveys the, the actual structure of the page to someone uh, that may not be able to, to just look at it and, and mm -hmm. glean that information. So that's probably one of the, the, the issues that I you know, encounter the most, headings. Um, you know, when it comes to color, and I've said this a few times, using color to convey meaning. I'll kind of just clarify that. Let's say you're filling out a form and you're putting in a zip code and you put in um, a letter instead of a number. So we know that that's not a valid zip code. And as soon as you hit tab and you move away from that input field, a red box shows up uh, around the field. Um, now, to someone who can perceive the color red, that could be interpreted as there's an error with that input field. Mm -hmm. um, but for someone who can't perceive red, um, that could just be, it could be a black border, it could be a mixed color border, it could, they may not perceive a border at all. Um, and so they would never know that there was an error with, with that field. So the use of color to convey meaning, at least the use of color as the sole means of conveying meaning, is definitely a, a serious access barrier that, that I see all the time. Um, other issues that I see, you know, as it relates to content. Well, let me just say something on that, though. That's one of those things that uh, an automatic accessibility checker is not necessarily going to pick up. Sometimes you have That's to right. use your brain That's as right. a human to just kind of understand exactly. whether or not this is going to be perceivable. That's a really good point. So there are things that we can check for and things that require human judgment. That's, that's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely one of those things that's going to require human judgment. Um, the next item definitely requires human judgment, and that's mm -hmm. good link text, right? So again, you have a link on a page, and the link says read more. Now, for someone who can look at the page, they can kind of look around that link and, and glean what the context of that link and the purpose of that link is. If you are a keyboard user, if you are a screen reader user, typically you're tabbing around the page, you'll land on that link. Um, specifically for those that use screen readers, you hear, you know, one of the things that you may hear when you land on it is what that link, what that element is and what the label for that thing is. So you may hear, click here, link. And as a screen reader user, the first question you may ask yourself is, click here, Where? Read, yeah, <laughs> read more about what, learn more about what, click here for what. So good descriptive links are, are um, really important, and I see that um, um, all the time. Other issues that, that are kind of, um, uh, you know, as ubiquitous as some of the things that I've mentioned right now are um, relate to um, input elements. So again, if you have an input element, and we see tons of problems with these. For example, um, a lot of times there'll be something called a placeholder inside of the input field, and the placeholder tells you what to put into that field. It'll just be like a like a light gray um, text inside of the field. And First you, name, last name. Exactly. Like Zip code, enter your billing address, mm -hmm. what have you. Um, a couple things here. One, that may not you know pass color contrast testing. So you 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 look at that thing and it has a really low color contrast. That's a problem for for those with low vision. That's a problem with those that are colorblind. That may be a problem for those um, that may be that may be um, respectfully up there in age. <laughs> so for for our older demographic that's interacting with this, they may have trouble perceiving that. That's the first thing. Second thing is if you're a screen reader user, if an input field doesn't have a label, then how would you know what the purpose of that is? Right again. If I take it back to the link example, you hear the, the um, type of element that is followed by the label. So you may hear editable field blank, right? So is this a first name field? Is this a last name field? Um, a lot of times fields will be logically related, right? So if I'm filling in my shipping address information, it's usually followed by my billing address information. The first name, last name, zip code, blah, 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 um, all relate to a single grouping of elements. My, my, um, my, um, billing address, for example. And then you have another grouping of elements that may have the same label, right? First name, last name, what have you, 
and that relates to my shipping address. So a lot of times what is good that we recommend is that you provide a label for the grouping. So each of the inputs has a, has a label, but also the grouping has a label. And that helps users as they move in and out of groupings to know what the purpose of that grouping is and to convey that those elements are logically related. Mm -hmm. We see that all the time. So thinking about how to structure the application to convey meaning to, to um, you know, different types of users that may be reliant on different types of assistive technologies. That's essentially the name of the game when it comes to accessibility. But those are some of the main, main problems that I find. Right. And all those extra considerations that you make and all that extra information that you add to convey that those things are linked together mm -hmm. is giving a screen reader user a sense that they can trust this application, right? That it's not throwing them all over the place right. and making them lost. Because yep. um, that's a lot of times what it seems like it's doing when it's jumping right. from the top to the bottom to the middle. That's exactly right. Now, oh, you just reminded me of another issue that I see all the time. So users that, that um, again, aren't using a mouse that may rely on a keyboard or a screen reader, expect that when they navigate the page that they can navigate it in a logical way, right? So, you know, if you're looking at the page, you may start from the very top left. You may look at the logo. You may go to the, the, the menu at the top. You may kind of scan the page in a, in a relatively um, logical way. And so what we expect is when you tap through the page, like Megan said, the tab, the tab, you know, the focus doesn't go from the top to the bottom to a link at the top right to, and then it gets lost. You can't right. see it. So ensuring that you can navigate a web page in a logical way is also um, extremely important. Yeah, cool. So this is quite a bit of technical stuff, and there's there's a ton of information out there, and we can even choose some some good articles that we might link below this podcast to to help people remind them how to understand what you've been talking about in these common issues. Mm -hmm. um, but how might a layperson start to inch their way into the technical aspects of accessibility? So the first thing I think that um, is important, at least from kind of how I learned about accessibility, is um, learn about you know the basics, right? So what is accessibility? What is the user demographic that's affected by, by information technology? Um, what are the different kinds of assistive technologies that are available? You know, maybe get a feel for, for, for how they work. Um, I think um, interacting perhaps with users with disabilities and seeing, you know, here's how I use a screen reader. Here's how I interact with a computer. I have a color-related disability or deficiency. Here's how, um, here's how what I'm expecting from, from uh, I think, a web page. That would probably be the first thing. Um, you know, if you're, depending on, on what you're doing, if you are a designer, if you're a developer, if you're someone who's a, uh, you're a project manager, you, um, know that what you're doing, the content or technology that you produce, that you're providing, um, is going to affect a large population of users. The, thinking about the impact of, of the technology that you're rolling out and how it's going to affect those users is also, I think, something important. So the first question you may ask yourself is, okay, well, I need to get an evaluation done to see the So I have a handout, and this handout needs to be filled out, and it's a PDF. Is this PDF accessible? I have a website that I'm rolling out. Has an evaluation been done to ensure accessibility? Um, I think knowing the process and knowing um, how to get to the end result, which is basically an accessible content, which is an accessible website and accessible technology, um, would probably be the second step or so. And then third, you know, you can dive into it. You can learn about keyboard testing. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I, that I teach people when it comes to keyboard testing is, okay, well, go to your favorite website, go to your news website, okay, we're going to take away the mouse, try to navigate this with a keyboard. 
that's really, I think, enlightening and eye-opening for a lot of people because then like, oh, I, I click on this button like every single day, I can't get to it with the keyboard. That's an accessibility problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a date picker here, I'm trying to book a flight, I can't access it. That's an accessibility problem. So I think, you know, beginning to acclimate yourself to, to those, that, kind of, that kind of testing Navigate with a keyboard alone. What kinds of things do you find? You know, there's a free color contrast tool that you can download and you can you can kind of pixel paint and find out what the color contrast ratio is for, for text. And so you quickly learn that there's a specific ratio that yet you know you you um, want to adhere to. And if it's below that ratio, there's a chance that some users are not gonna be able to perceive it. So familiarizing yourself with that tool, um, in addition to screen readers, you know, download a screen reader. What does it sound like? Navigate the page by headings. See if there's a heading structure on the page. Navigate using uh, you know, landmarks, which is another type of, of, of navigation structure. Um, see, see that you know, all of the things on the page, they relate to you with the purpose of why they're there. They relate to you a, a descriptive label. When you know, you're interacting with things, does it convey to you that something has happened? Does it convey the state, right? So if you're clicking on like, an, like a thing that expands and collapses, does it tell you it's expanded? Does it tell you it's collapsed? You'll quickly learn that there's lots and lots of things that are that you know are problematic from an accessibility standpoint. But we need people to learn more about it, um, and you know, without seeing those issues, you may not have an appreciation for why they're they're called access barriers. So, yeah, sure. I think those those that's probably the the, the multi-step process that I would follow. Um, and then there's lots of resources on the web on how to do testing. There's lots of standards that we use. Um, WCAG is one of them. Um, another one's called the ARIA Authoring Practices, which tells you, you know, if you have an element, I have a button. How should I expect the button to interact as a screen user, as a keyboard user? Um, I have a link. How do links, you know, how, how should I interact with a link? I have this complex widget. How should it function for a screen user? For so there's really good guidance. Um, and then you have all these companies like, you know, DQ and WebAIM and Level Access that have all these great free trainings that teach you from the ground up. Um, about accessibility and how to include it as part of your process or what you do. Sure. Yeah, and we can link to some of those as well. Mm -hmm. So what would you hope the baseline skills of an average instructor or content producer across the university mm -hmm. would be? So the baseline skills, so one, uh, you know, what kinds of, so depending on what kind of content it is, um, have you have you thought about the different kinds of users that are going to use that content. So I think the number one scale is going to be, um, you know, what have you done to, before you've, you've disseminated this content or what have you, what have you done to think about accessibility, right? So um, definitely, you know, basic stuff, right? So is there a heading structure, um, color-related issues? You've, you've, you've thought about, you know, how, how those that may be colorblind are going to be impacted by the content. Um, you think about, okay, well, I've given uh, a document to someone. Have I used the built-in document accessibility checker, right? So you have a Word document, you have a PowerPoint. Um, you know, there are built-in checkers that will tell you about some of the basic issues, right? I have an image. Have I provided a description for this image, right? Um, for things that are informative, uh, specifically when it relates to images, we want alternative descriptions that convey equivalent meaning to, I think, users with, with uh, visual impairments or visual disabilities. Um, have you thought about, um, you know, uh, uh, good link uh, text, right? So if you have links in there, are they, are they appropriately um, described? Do you have good link text? So those are some of the basic things I think anyone, anyone can do. Um, as it gets more complicated, you definitely want to, I think, learn more about, because I think everyone at some point has to learn 
a little bit more than just the basics because if you rely on one person or two or three people or even a group of people to do everything when it relates to accessibility you. for you, um, that becomes, uh, you know, you, at least for me, I, I, mean, I like to be autonomous and I like to, to within reason, be able to um, follow the rules and, and, and uh, kind of know what I have to do in order to ensure accessibility. So um, you, you can do it. It's not super complicated. It can be tricky sometimes, you know, there's people like us around that are, that are you know, happy to help, but um, there are, are things that you can start doing today that would take you no more than five minutes, some of the things that I've mentioned, to ensure that anyone can access this content, right? And I think those, that's a really important, I can't stress that enough, right? So you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to rely on someone else to do it, to do everything for you. Yeah. And the more you pick up that vocabulary and try to understand those concepts, the more you'll start to see inaccessible materials everywhere um, and start to really easily understand what the, the basic steps you would need to take to, to remediate those. Yeah. Cool. Um, so a lot of times you're working with software. I know that you're doing and working on some big projects for the OCIO, but <laughs> how hard is it to work with vendors? to try to make products or software more accessible? It varies. It varies from vendors that want to learn more about it, that, that really want to tap into you know, the really good expertise that we have as, a, as an organization because we think about accessibility every day as part of our process. Um, it ranges from that to, uh, well, we can't really, we don't, either we don't have any resources to work on this for the next 20 years, <laughs> um, or, you know, that's really interesting. We'll think about it. Uh, as though accessibility was, you know, just kind of a, an afterthought or something that they can just kind of worry about um, whenever it, it, it is brought back up to them at a later time. So vendors are, are um, kind of, sometimes it can be tricky to work with them. Uh, by and large, you have vendors that are, you know, they want to participate in the process. Um, you know, we're providing something to them that other companies provide for hundreds of dollars an hour when it comes to, you know, the, the technical expertise and how to resolve issues. Um, we have to, to be sure to keep um, on the vendors as well because a lot of times if they tell us if they have you know the best of intentions and they say this is all, you know, all going to be resolved in six months we have you know the, the if we get sued uh, you know mm. it's us that's getting sued and not the, the content or the stuff that we bought that we're providing to students so it's not the onus is on us right we have to track that work and ensure that the vendors actually getting that work done uh, which can be uh, sometimes difficult because you know vendors have a lot of stuff going on themselves. Um, their developers could be could be really busy, and so we we try to you know create a very welcoming, collaborative environment mm -hmm. um, to ensure that that they like working with us. Um, we really haven't had any issues with vendors flat out denying the importance of accessibility, um, which is which is great. Um, but for the most part, vendors seem to be interested, but kind of. Um, resource restricted or time restricted when it comes to accessibility um, and sometimes you get to work with really really interesting vendors that, that just you know are super interested in what we do um, and just kind of go above and beyond and, and uh, you know you see that they end up with really accessible products that they can tell other people hey we collaborated with Ohio State and Michigan and all these other schools to ensure accessibility and um, interestingly enough it's always positive for them uh, and I just wish that more vendors felt that way Right. They don't look at it as a combative thing. Yeah, and how often do the changes that you make together or that you ask them to make end up mm -hmm. improving the experience for most people? More often than not. 
yeah. more often than not. So the the what we try to do is, you know, we, we talk about accessibility. We want to remove access barriers, right? So um, we don't want to to um, lessen the experience for, for anyone else. We just want to ensure an equivalent experience for, for users with disabilities. So more often than not, they end up with a much more accessible and much more usable uh, uh, product out of the, our collaboration. Very cool. It's good work. Um, all right, so just to wrap this up, in your words, why is accessible technology important? Accessible technology is important because just like we don't discriminate uh, you know, against individuals based off of race, religion, or gender, uh, we don't want to discriminate against our users with disabilities. Uh, and accessibility is, is profoundly the right thing to do. It's, it's, you know, it's something that um, everyone can do, but it's definitely the right thing to do. There's really no other way, in my opinion, to think about it. You just have to do it. Cool. Very good. All right. Well, thanks to Raheem for being with me today. I'm really excited by all the work that you are doing and all the knowledge that you're spreading. So thank you. Thank you. Access EDU was created and produced by employees of The Ohio State University. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of their employer.